WDBM East Lansing. The impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In World News Today, one of astronomy's longest-running investigations has concluded that there is molecular oxygen in space, according to the BBC. While single atoms of oxygen have been found alone or incorporated into other molecules, the oxygen molecule, the one that we breathe, had never been seen before. In national news, President Barack Obama has signed legislation to increase the debt ceiling. This averts a financial default, according to the BBC. The bill cleared its final hurdle in the Senate by 74 votes to 26. It raises the debt limit by up to $2.4 trillion. The debt limit was more than $14 trillion. The bill's signing came roughly 10 hours before the deadline for Washington to raise its borrowing limit. Without a deal to raise the debt ceiling, the U.S. would have been unable to meet all its bills, the Treasury Department warned. And in Michigan news, the Michigan Board of Education wants an additional 10 years to get students prepared to meet the proficiency scores on state standardized tests, according to Michigan Radio. The federal goal calls for all children to be proficient in state exams by 2014. State leaders want to waive the No Child Left Behind requirements for 10 years. They believe this period will prepare every Michigan student to be proficient in reading and math. And today on Exposure, we will be talking about the Lansing Jazz Fest, which is going on this weekend. Also, we'll be talking about the future of the Great Lakes and Impact Exposure Emmanuel Berry reviews an outdoor fitness program in Lansing, which is pretty fun. I hope you stay tuned for that. But first, local food is the hottest menu trend in America this year. That's according to a survey by the National Restaurant Association. Here's a feature I did on how Michigan State University researchers are trying to give consumers more information about local food. Some say local is the new green. Take a listen to how two characters in the show Portlandia portray the local food movement in America. Hey guys. Hello. Hi, hello. My name is Dana. I'll be uh, taking care of you today. If you have any questions about the menu, please let me know. I guess I do have a question about the chicken. If you could just tell us a little bit more about it. Uh, the chicken is a heritage breed, uh, woodland-raised chicken that's been fed a diet of sheep's milk, soy, and hazelnuts. Okay, this is, this is local? Yes, absolutely. I'm going to ask you just one more time, and it's local. It is. Is that USDA organic or Oregon organic or Portland organic? It's just all across the board, organic. Okay, so not every restaurant is like the one featured in this sitcom. But researchers at Michigan State University say people do want more information about their food. They're starting a pilot program to do just that with local beef. I went on a tractor tour of MSU's 350-acre cattle farm on campus. This is where MSU students and researchers are raising cattle that will be packaged and processed in Michigan and fed to students in campus cafeterias in the fall. We can run roughly around 150 cows here. That's Jason Roundtree. He's an MSU professor who's part of this local beef program. In the fall, when the students are served the beef from his farm, there will be kiosks in the cafeterias and barcodes on table tents that students can scan with their smartphones. That will take them to a website that comes up with all kinds of information about the beef, including where the cow was raised and what its diet was. The bigger idea is to eventually have these barcodes on packaged meats in grocery stores so consumers can learn about the beef before they buy it. Dan Buskert is a professor in animal sciences at MSU. He's leading this project to track beef from farm to fork. All the technology is currently there to, to be able to do this. We just have to put it together and, and get it in people's hands so that they can start using it. Buskert says it makes sense to start this tracking program in Michigan. In 2007, the Michigan Department of Agriculture mandated that all cows have tracking tags. That's so if there's a disease outbreak, a cow can be traced back to the farm where the outbreak began. Because of all this, all cows in Michigan have what is called radio frequency identification. It's a microchip inserted into the cow's ear that has a number attached to it so the cow can be tracked. Buskert says they'll be utilizing that existing system in their pilot program. This year, the program will provide 4,000 pounds of local beef to MSU cafeterias. Buskert expects the program to expand over the years and branch out to local retailers. For Impact Exposure, I'm Emily Fox. You're listening to Impact Exposure. 
For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox. This weekend, the Lansing Jazz Fest is going on in Old Town. On Friday and Saturday, to talk about the event is Ben Hall. He's the Michigan Institute for Contemporary Art. You can also hear him on Wednesdays here um, on the Impact. He does the the blues show. Are you still doing that? I sure am. Yeah. How how many years has that been? Four. Four years. Over four years. Yeah. So Impactor Ben Hall is here. Also on the phone is Dr. E. She's one of the headliners um, at at the Jazz Fest this year. Welcome to the show, Dr. E. As well. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to start off with Ben asking you a few questions. Talk about talk about the lineup at Jazz Fest this year. Well, we have all sorts of fantastic, very interesting, very talented musicians that will be performing this weekend. Um, Dr. E, of course, who's on the phone, East Lansing, uh, former East Lansing resident. I'll let you talk about yourself a little later, but we've got, uh, um, let's see, uh, Lisa Smith, who's a favorite local artist. We've got uh, Maeve Gilchrist. It's, she's uh, very interesting because she is a, a jazz harp player. Um, let's see. Um, Marcus Elliott Quartet. Marcus is actually an MSU student, and um, he's played with all sorts of big names and also done a lot of music mentoring. Um, lady named Nicole Mitchell, who's actually been spoken of as one of the greatest living flutists and I mean flautists, sorry, in, in jazz. If she heard me call her a flutist, she probably would be a little upset. <laughs> also got some Latin jazz. We've got some funk. Just all sorts of fantastic stuff. So Ben, I know that we all know that you're host the blues show here at the Impact, and mm-hmm. I know that Lansing and Old Town also has a blues fest coming up in the fall. Um, how would you? I mean, knowing that you're kind of you know a bluesy guy, how would you? <laughs> how would you compare and contrast the jazz fest to the blues fest? Well, you know, it's for me, it, it's just music, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a fantastic way for us to get together with our neighbors. And, uh, you know, people from all different walks of life and enjoy great live music. And, um, you know, jazz and blues have their roots in the same place, as well as, you know, rock and roll, punk music. I mean, it all it all comes from, from, from influenced by the same artists. It all comes from the same place. Um, the differences between the two festivals are, I, you know, I, I don't know, you know, a lot of the same, get a lot of the same crowd. Um, yeah, I really, you know, other than that, I mean... That there really isn't uh, that much of a difference. I mean, I don't know. You get a little more of the rock and roll types, I guess, at the at the at the blues fest than the jazz fest. But but we're working on that. All right. We're going to win them over. So. <laughs> well, without further ado, I, I'd like to introduce um, Dr. E. She's one of the headliners. She's going to perform on Friday at 9 p.m. at the Lansing Jazz Fest. So, Dr. E., um, you obviously are a jazz musician, and um, you you did some schooling here at, at MSU. You have your Ph.D., in fact. Um, talk about how did you get involved in jazz? Well, I kind of grew up on it. My parents listened to a lot of Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis, Nancy Wilson, Dion Warwick. Uh, my mom is Jamaican, so I heard a lot of uh, 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 Calypso music. Um, so it was just kind of all around me. I grew up in the R&B-type neighborhood where people listen to Gladys Knight. Uh, you know, all kinds of Motown music growing up. Um, I sang with a lot of wedding bands, uh, all-occasion bands and stuff like that. So uh, it's just kind of been in me. My dad was a trumpet player as well. So you, you have your Ph.D. in English um, from Michigan State. And applied State. linguistics. 
an yeah. applied linguistics, and you're also a professor um, at Ohio State University. So. Uh, the Ohio State University. The Ohio State <laughs> University. And what do you what do you teach there? Uh, I'm in language and literacy studies. Um, previously, I taught at Penn State for nine years, and uh, my my areas are language and literacy studies. So now that I'm in a college of education, I teach teachers theories of language and literacy acquisition. So I'm curious, how do you balance being a musician and a professor at the same time? I'm assuming that, you know, linguistics and language and music go along pretty well together. But, I mean, when you, if you would have to pick one, would you define yourself as a musician or as a professor? Oh, wow. Well, I think I'm both. I, if I had to pick one, I couldn't because I'm, I'm both. <laughs> um. Wow, that's a hard one. You said if I really just had to pick one. Well, I guess I mean, what what when it comes to to your time, I suppose, um, you know, on a weekly basis, what 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 do you spend more time doing? Oh man, I juggle a lot. I juggle um, because I do have uh, you know responsibility to uh, my students. I have PhD students that I'm training. I also have classes to teach. So. It is a, a pretty much of a juggling act to make sure that I have all my coursework and stuff like that done. But also, music is so important to me that I have to have time for my music. So it's all about balancing my time and uh, making sure that I get things done that I need to have done. But so I would never, ever put my music um, um, to the back burner. I've had to do it um, like sometimes during my schooling career. But I never, ever, like, totally got rid of it. I always had it someplace uh, close by because it's, it's a part of my sanity and a part of my wellness as well. you got to have that outlet. You know, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, got to. So I'm, I'm always writing songs. I'm always, you know, I mean, I can have, uh, like, at the end of this conversation, Maybe something like choosing between the two would become a theme for me. Just just because you asked me that question, I'm always, <laughs> you know, my mind is always going to, oh, wow, that's a cold-blooded lyric. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so talking about, you know, songs and, and literacy, talk about some of your books that you've published. I'm really curious by the titles. One of your books um, is called PGD to PhD. Can you talk about that book? Yes, I can. Uh, that That is the book that I wish that I could have written for my dissertation. Uh, but, you know, I had to do, like, the high sort of theory and pedagogical book uh, when I was an assistant professor. Uh, my, my job at the um, at Penn State University, my, my chair told me, look, I, this is the type of book I need you to write, which was a, a revision of my dissertation. Um, but So I couldn't write my memoir. But PGD to PhD is, stands for Poe Girl on Dope to PhD. And it's a memoir about how education saved my life from being a drug addict, a streetwalker, alcoholic, uh, from being totally hopeless and overcoming um, all of those things to uh, finding something to love about myself, learning how to like myself, learning how to love myself, and knowing that I was worth something. And so that that book, to me, is the book that I write to people who come from places like I come from, which is the inner city of Cleveland, Ohio, where a lot of people have, um, you know, had to live rough lives and may have gotten involved, not all, because some people who grew up in, in, in the poverty never got in trouble and went straight through school, had no problems. But some of us got caught up, and I'm one of the people who got caught up. So my book is uh, it's sort of like a testimony, and hopefully people will read it and be inspired by it to know that whatever you've gone through doesn't have to define your future. Yeah, I was very curious about it because um, when I was, you know, kind of researching you before the show, it was 
um, I read, you know, you described yourself as growing up on the streets and now you are a professor. So, I mean, what, I mean, how was it that you were able to, I mean, did you always have that ambition in mind or was there, you know, a good mentor along the way that pushed you along to get your PhD? Because, you know, sometimes that's, you know, you see a lot of people and that's kind of, you know, within their family, like you have to go to school, you have to get a higher education, but to be growing up as you would describe on the streets or Poe girl on dope as you would, would PGDB as a part of your book. Um, how, you know, how was that? How did you find yourself in education? Well, well, I should say that I didn't grow up on the streets. I, I had working parents. My parents, you know, were hardworking people, but they did not have a lot of education. My mom was a Jamaican immigrant. She went to the sixth grade. My father went to the 11th grade. Um, my father was an uh, American. But, um, you know, they were lower working class people, so they, they did want me to, to uh, be a college-educated person. But they did not have the advocacy skills that parents need when you are growing up in high-poverty school districts and those types of things. They, they were just happy that I was going to school, and they wanted me to go, and they encouraged me to go, and they, my mother did everything she could to make sure I graduated from high school. Uh, and it was a struggle because I was raped at an early age, and uh, I had a lot of emotional uh, issues. I never went to counseling for those, and that's how I got involved with pimps and got involved with the street life uh, because I didn't have any self-esteem and I felt accepted in that life. So, um, but to answer your question about how I got uh, became a, a professor, I never would, I would have been the last person on earth that anybody would have thought could have gotten a PhD. Um, myself included. I would have never thought about getting a PhD. Uh, the most that I wanted once I did go back to school was an undergraduate degree. But one thing led to another, and I, I just kept met, meeting people who were encouraging me. Um, I had been arrested for prostitution. By the time I graduated from uh, Cleveland State with an undergraduate uh, English major and a secondary um, teaching certificate, I was... Um, at a crossroads about filling out job applications with school districts because I had been arrested for prostitution. Uh, so a young man that I took classes with actually told me about uh, being a teaching assistant um, and getting a master's degree. We were English majors together, and he said, you know, you're so smart. I, I bet you, he asked me how it went when I went to the, uh, the teaching fair, the job, Ohio job teaching fair. And I told him that I didn't fill out any of the applications because they all said, have you ever been arrested? And I didn't. I was sort of close to it at that point. You know, I had only been out of street life maybe five, six years. So I, I didn't feel comfortable explaining to um, school administrators that I had been a prostitute and a drug addict. And so I had told my friend about this, and he said, well, why don't you try to get your master's? Why don't you, you know, try to be a teaching assistant, and then you can get your master's degree paid for? And so I said, wow, you, I never even knew about getting a master's or being a teaching assistant. And sure enough, I applied, and I was accepted to the master's program. And uh, my, my major became applied linguistics because I had so many problems as a freshman student learning how to write academic discourse. That's how I got involved in linguistics. So as a teaching assistant, I, I always worked with um, people who were language minority students or people who spoke Ebonics and people who were having trouble acquiring standard, uh, standardized um, academic English. Um, and I just became really good at it. It became my area of research. And I finally met a woman by the name of Geneva Smitherman, who was a university distinguished professor at Michigan State. And I had read everything that she had written. And she came to Cleveland State and gave a talk, and I was the only person who had a thousand questions for her mm. at the end of her talk. And um, she said, you know, you should think about getting a Ph.D. You're very knowledgeable, and uh, I'm sure you do well at Michigan State in our Ph.D. program. And I said, really? <laughs> oh, my God, a Ph.D.? You think I could get one? And so my whole, like, academic career has kind of just been... People um, encouraging me, investing in me, mentoring me, and giving me advice, and I kind of just took them up on it because, you know, it seemed to be going well. You know, it's better than being in the street life, better than being on drugs, and um, at the same time, I'm able to help other people um, and raise my children to, to be educated and to be um, good citizens. So it's just kind of all been working out for me. 
Wow, that's a beautiful story. So again, for our listeners, if you're just tuning in, I'm talking on the phone with Dr. E. She's one of the headliners at the Lansing Jazz Festival, which is going on this weekend. She's performing on Friday at 9 p.m. And, and Dr. E, I also understand that you're also going to lead a clinic at the Jazz Festival on, at Friday at 5 p.m. What will you be I doing am. at that clinic? I am going to be talking about life and lyrics, how you can take your life and uh, make lyrics, make songs out of your life as a form of therapy. And it's also a form of making music, making songs, and just kind of healing yourself through music. Now, without further ado, uh, Dr. E, we're going we're gonna to take this interview out with a song. And this is off of uh, a title track off of your CD, and this song is called um, Elevated. Can you talk a little bit about this song before we play it? Definitely. Um, Basically, it's sort of like my, it is my testimony uh, of how I went through adversities, hard times, uh, but now I'm elevated, you know, and there's always hope for people and never give up on anybody. And without further ado, here's the song. It's called Elevated here on Impact 89 FM. This song is dedicated to all the people out there who struggle through life, had hard times and situations, but didn't just let it keep you there. No. You dug deep down and brought out that greater one within you that let you know you could make it for your babies, for your families, but most of all, for yourself. I am standing here today as someone who's come You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Again, that was a song by Dr. E. She was just on the show. She is performing at the Lansing Jazz Festival, which is going on this weekend. For more information, go to jazzlansing.com. And up next, a new workout in Lansing is taking uh, taking the gym outside. Exposure contributor Emmanuel Berry tries her hand at Ecotrek Fitness. Here it is. The gym is boring. The monotonous and droning hum of the treadmill combined with the inconsistent clink of weights creates a melody so soothing that I find myself bored to death when I approach any exercise equipment. It's not that I don't like exercise. I have participated in sports all my life, even played basketball in college. But after a few knee injuries, it was time to hang up my sneakers and find a new way to stay fit. Problem is, I cannot seem to find any form of exercise that works for me. Tai Chi is too slow, kickboxing, classes too violent, biking, well, if I had a bike that was decent, I might enjoy it. My latest exercise escapade was with Ecotrek, essentially group exercise outside. The sound of chirping birds rather than that of humming treadmills, sign me up. Ecotrek founder Carrie Draft started the program after witnessing outdoor training classes in California. The program started on the western side of the state and has now expanded to the Lansing area. The workout essentially capitalizes on the concept of making the outdoors a gym. Groups meet outside in any weather, and yes, that means winter too, in different locations every time. Ready to breathe in the fresh air and get my exercise on, I met Lansing Ecotreg leader Brenda Rogers at Lake Lansing Park North. 
I asked Brenda what to expect. We usually start out with a warm-up, do a little bit of light, and then as we go through the workout, we'll do a lot of walking, we throw in some running, we'll, we'll stop and do some strength trainings. Brenda also teaches classes at gyms. She says working out outside changes the experience. This gives you an opportunity um, to see the parks, the trails in the dancing area, because we're always moving to a different location. So from there, a group of six people and myself headed off onto a dirt trail on our fitness journey. Grassy, sappy trees, deer, and stifling heat. I felt like a pioneer, one with the musty environment. This must be what it was like, I kept telling myself, until a giant bug flew in my face. Bug spray is not optional for Ecotrek. Wear it. The workout itself was challenging. Planks, push-ups, bicep curls, jumping. Every time I found myself on the verge of, are we done yet? We'd stop walking, find a tree, and use our weight bands to work our arms, or I'd see some interesting animal or hear some soothing sound. As for the workout difficulty, considering that I sounded like this for almost the entire 75 minutes, it was a challenge. One of my fellow trekkers, Joe Laird, who obviously is in much better shape than me. I was like Zeus, if you could see me. Also found the workout challenging. I kind of thought it was going to be a joke when I first heard about it. After being out here, it was very physically demanding. It was a lot of fun because you felt like you're in the woods, the wilderness, like a kid. So it wasn't always thinking about how hard it is. So it was, it was absolutely fun, and I'd do it again. Although people in the group were clearly at different fitness levels, we were all able to survive and participate. Being in the group gave me that extra boost to continue when sometimes I lagged behind and wanted to just be done, maybe take a little sit or rest on a bench. More than anything about this experience, I enjoyed feeling like a kid again. When going to the park was an adventure, when you'd wait all day just to go outside, and when it wasn't about a workout, but it was just playtime. I'm not sure if I have found my next great fitness adventure, but I do know that I was never bored. For Impact Exposure, I'm Emmanuel Berry. And that was Exposure Reporter Manuel Berry talking about Ecotrek Fitness. You can find more information about Ecotrek at ecotrekfitness.com. And in the studio right now is Ben Rivett. He grew up in the Lansing area and is now a musician and producer, and he is here to share some of his music with us today. Welcome to the show, Ben Rivett. Nice to see you. So you were on the show two years ago to talk about how you recorded a music video with your iPhone. So this was the second generation iPhone. So this was, this was pretty new uh, to everyone's minds, I think, at the time. But what have you been up to since we last chatted? Uh, when, I, when I produced the iPhone video, I was kind of flying by the seat of my pants. So I think, I think I've been kind of catching up. I've been doing it in reverse order, trying to catch up from that, because um, it was ex- super successful um, online. So since then, I've been... Uh, working to get get some more recordings out and get some more videos uh, done and and really just performing a bunch in both down in Ohio and around the Midwest and stuff. So so you were based in Ohio for a while after you graduated from from uh, from high school. So you went to college there. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you compare Dayton's music scene to let's say Lansing's music scene? Uh, they're not too different. The size of the cities uh, are, is pretty similar, and uh, I think it's about who you know. Uh, you have to you have to kind of seep into the cracks and and play um, bars that you're not used to or play venues that you're not used to. Um, but they're not too they're not too different. I'm, I've actually started to play up here more a couple years after not living here and realizing that it's not too different. But I guess at, in most cities are like that. A bar is a bar, and a venue is a venue, and a, and a gig's a gig. So I guess it's, it's about the people that you're playing to. Cool. Without further ado, would you like to play a tune for us? Sure, sure. This song's called The Runner. After this girl, I'll run around the whole damn world, but at least I'll see some sights along the way. I may trip, I may fall, but that's part of the journey. After all, that's what my parents always say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
tricks of my sleep If I can look her in the eyes And see her fears And know that they'll be the same in 60 years But I can still make her see Beyond, I'll go above all the expectation of me. You may push and I may pull. I'm full of determination, not full, full of that stuff you've seen. studio is Ben Rivett. He was, uh, grew up in the Lansing area. He is a musician and producer. And for to see his, check out his music um, and look at vis- videos as well, you can go to bjsrmusic.com. So Ben, you uh, recently came out with a new EP, mm-hmm. and it featured 11 different artists um, spanning a lot of different instrumentation. Um, talk about the instrumentation you used on this EP and, and how that may differ from, let's see, when you're playing like in a bar and it's just you and the guitar. How would you, you differ that experience between p- playing solo and collaborating with a lot of artists? Uh, I... I titled the the EP Axe and Vox because all of the songs kind of started the way you just just heard them of guitar and voice Axe and Vox and for the EP I I was having a really hard time deciding on a a genre or a a set of instruments to to perform with because I I knew that I wasn't going to perform with that set because I performed solo so I said why not just go all out. So um, it was cool because it was a way for me to take these ideas that were very simple guitar and voice and throw in cello and, and bass and drums and guitar and synth and vocals and, and stuff. Um, but they all are slightly different. They're all, they all kind of have a different feel because I think I'm, I'm still pretty new at this, so I'm kind of figuring out as I go what, what my quote-unquote sound is. 
but the, it all kind of bases itself back down to guitar and vocals. So you also, not only do you, you know, record music, um, but you put a lot of music videos together. Mm -hmm. How many music videos have you done so far? I just released my third major video. I, sh I produce a lot of live videos, but for this project, uh, the, the EP, I decided rather than going to the studio and cramming out another six or seven songs or another full album, that I would let these songs breathe a little bit because I wasn't, I'm not done playing them. Um, uh, so I, I decided that I was going to release a music, a music video for each song on the EP, um, and I started thinking. The more I started thinking about that, the more I kind of wanted to let the songs have take on a different life, uh, even than just the guitar and the voice and just the other instrumentation. So I, I gave the songs to six different sets of producers and gave them all the tracks individually and said, "Do whatever you want with them." Um, and I'm finding that the the final product that I'm getting from the producers is what I'm ultimately shooting, putting the music videos, setting the music videos to, because uh, they take on a different life when you give them to somebody else, when you just allow that to happen. Um, so I, by the time I'm done pressing these six songs, people are going to hear them. Because <laughs> so, <laughs> not everybody will hear them. But do you come up with the ideas for the music videos? Are yeah, I do. I do most of the writing um, on this. Uh, the one that I'm working on uh, now, uh, called Father Leader that's going to be the next release I'm actually teaming up with a lot more people it started out the first shoot was me and one other guy second one was a group of four people this next one is going to have 10 or 15 people helping out with the uh, with the production and I think we're going to get 30 or 40 people in the actual shoot so uh, as each video gets released my ambition gets a little bit stronger and you know I get more momentum and more people on my side so who knows what the where that will take it. So I now understand that you are trying to do remixes of mm -hmm. songs mm -hmm. now. Um, to take us out of the interview, we're going to hear one of them. But um, your latest song that we'll be we'll be listening to is is called "On My um, On My Way," mm -hmm. and uh, and that's a remix. And yeah. and also online, you're you're having fans pick a price for a download. You know, name your price, and you can download this. And I've been seeing that a lot lately. What is the um, you know, what have, have your reactions been so far? Uh, it's nice. Uh, a lot of people like to download it for free, but that's cool because that means it's on their iPod. Um, but people people will pay for music that they like. What's funny is that uh, oftentimes I'm finding people are downloading it for free, and then two weeks later they come and buy it again and pay money for it. Um, people understand the value of music. They understand the value of what it, um, what it, provi what it provides for them. And... Uh, if you give it to them, I think you'll find a better better outcome. Just give them a lot of opportunity and a lot of options to. That's why I'm trying to release all these remixes and all the videos. Is give them give them the opportunity to to listen to the music and I'm, you'll be rewarded for it as a musician. Do you think that that's the kind of the future where music is going to go as far as you know payment is? It's kind of creating that community and say, you know, I'm going to leave this up to you. I think exposure is going to go that way, um, but ultimately, uh, I mean, this is that's the name of the show. Is that p for especially for artists that are trying to get so much out that a lot of people thought that the that MySpace was going to kill the music scene, but I really think that it, what it does is it's motivating artists um, to produce a lot more material, get it out there, and then the stuff that's really solid w will sell because uh, the quality of the of the material, uh, the cream will rise to the top and. Um, I, with the, the influx of vinyl and the, the live performances and all the different ways that you can present your music to people, that I don't think it's going to be that everybody will just give away their music and everybody will just take music for free. I think it'll be you're exposed to a lot more and then you decide what you want to buy. Excellent. Well, without further ado, we're going to play the song. This is called On My Way by Ben Rivet. Uh, to, to check out his music online, you can go to bjsrmusic.com. Ben, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. This dust collecting dust So I grab my pen and I start writing The ink has all run dry, but still I try and try this fighting. Before you call my bluff, remember the road is rough and I'm on my way. To fill this page I know with all the thoughts I want to show. 
I'm your host, Emily Fox, and on the phone is Patty Burkholz. She is the director of the Office of the Great Lakes, and she's here to talk about the future of the Great Lakes and their impact on Michigan. Welcome to the show, Patty Burkholz. Thank you. So this year you were, or I guess last year, you were... um, you were sworn in under the Snyder administration uh, to be the director of the Office of the Great Lakes. Um, what do you hope to accomplish under his administration? Well, first of all, um, we're dealing with a lot of Great Lakes issues this year in Michigan that I, I think are very important to all of us, and the governor has made it a strong priority. He, In his state of the state, Governor Snyder talked about the natural resources of Michigan being one of the economic engines of our state going forward. And so we have to not only balance the economy and the needs of the users of Michigan, but also the the integrity of our natural resources and how we use them. And they are meant to be used, but used wisely, and how we use them and, 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 and um, help access them in our state going forward. So you say we're we're facing some issues with the with the Great Lakes right now. I know last week on on this show we we talked with someone about um, the threat of Asian carp. But what are some other issues that the Great Lakes um, may be facing right now? Well, there the Asian carp, which is an invasive species, is a huge issue for our state and probably the most threatening of the invasives right now. But there are 186 invasives, so we have other invasive fish, although certainly not as voracious as the Asian carp. We have invasive plants, and we even have some invasive animals in our state. So all of those have, have um, require our constant vigilance as well as planning and resources to either um, contain them going forward. Many cases we're trying to prevent their entryway into Michigan, like the Asian carp, and then in some cases we, we have um, issues dealing with them as far as their presence is here, but we don't want them to multiply and expand. Can you talk a little bit about the Great Lakes Compact and why it's important for Michigan? Well, the Great Lakes Compact is essential to our state as as we move forward because as the economy begins to grow again, and it is growing and will, I hope, continue to grow. Um, there will be more and more interest in tapping into our Great Lakes waters, not only here in Michigan, but also in all the other states and the two Canadian provinces. 
So that's very important that with the, the adoption of the compact now, all the states have adopted it as well as the two Canadian provinces, and it's been ratified by Congress, which gives it a treaty-like status going forward. And we need to be very cognizant of the compact and adhere to the compact because it allows us to use our waters and use them wisely, given standards that everybody has adopted, and then to be able to help grow our economy but make sure that that natural resource is here for our future use, for our children and our grandchildren and all those who come after us. So I know that the Great Lakes Compact is about kind of preserving and protecting the Great Lakes, but does it does the Great Lakes Compact limit certain states to be able to use the water, or, you know, how is it that it's protecting the Great Lakes? Well, it gives us all equal limitations. So under the Great Lakes Compact, we all have the same limitations. The One of the biggest of which is that the um, water that's used in the basin and taken from the basin has to remain in the basin. So... That means that basically if you use it here in Michigan, you can, you can use it and use it wisely, but it better be returned to the basin. Um, whether you're a farmer that's irrigating or whether you're a, a community that's using the water for drinking water, for purification, for drinking water, um, whether you're a small um, farm or, or it just a residential Use You know, you have to return it to the basin. One of the first requests for a diversion, quote-unquote, on the Great Lakes, under the Great Lakes Compact is going to come soon from Wisconsin because it's coming from the city of Waukesha, which is on the Great Divide. And part of their return flow, as they initially proposed, and there's now a second proposal because they withdrew their first proposal and they are going to be sending us a second proposal, would not have all the water being returned to the basin. It would go over the Great Divide and head west. So that will be one of the biggest issues facing our new Great Lakes governors. We have six new governors out of eight, two returning governors. And the Waukesha request will be a template going forward because it's going to be the first request for the Great Lakes governors under the compact. So just one more clarification. So basically the only only states that kind of lie in, you know, the Great Lakes Basin have access to that water because, you know, it has to be returned to the Great Lakes Basin. So, you know, you can't. Exactly. Like, let's say states like Nevada that are having a hard time trying to try to um, get access to water and are kind of drying up right now, they won't ever have access to the Great Lakes water, you know, for, for their for their use. No, it would be against the rules of the compact, which, as I noted earlier, is not has not only been adopted by all the states, but has been adopted by Congress. So it gives it a treaty level status. The only way that anyone could ever take water from within the basin, anywhere within the eight states or the two provinces, would have to happen um, in in case of a national or international catastrophe or emergency. And it has to rise, first of all, it has to rise to that level, and secondly, it would have to be concurred in by all the governors of the eight states. How would the Great Lakes be affected if more states had access to, to its um, water? Well, many scientists say that if, if other states outside the basin had access to our water and were not returning it, you know, they could literally take all our water or deplete it so far below its normal average return rate that we would not be successful using our water for even drinking water, let alone for irrigating our farms, for processing and manufacturing. A lot of manufacturers in Michigan use large amounts of water over an extended period of time, but most of the water that they use is cleaned up and then returned to the basin. So you once said that that each year water rises in its value and importance. Talk a little bit about that. Well, because there are more and more arid countries as well as arid states in the United States, more and more people value water more. The, the importance of it goes up because you can live without a lot of things, but you can't live without water. And so water's value increases as there are more arid spots in the world and in our nation, 
and we know, we've heard from the western states. I mean, I've talked to many legislators in my career in the legislature prior to this from the arid states, and they all say, well, we're going to get your water someday, or we want your water, or we covet your water. Um, I've had very um, strong discussions with some of those legislators from other states, and at the time we were in in the business of working on the compact, we were working on the development of the Great Lakes Compact, and then during part of that time getting it adopted by all the states. So, you know, I told them, we're, we're going to set this in a treaty. Um, we're going to document, we're going to finish the document, and then it's going to be certified by Congress. Therefore, you will not be able to get our water. So you're talking about these arid states. Do they have any backup plan for when their water resources, you know, may dry up? Um, in talking to most of them, their only backup plan is hoping and praying for more rain. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, that's why water is increasing in importance and increasing in its value over the years, um, particularly as people develop more and more land that's in an arid area of the country. Um, they need water to exist, and obviously, you know, it's it's going to be more and more difficult, and water is going to increase in value. So speaking of, of, of water, you're also, um, as a part of being the director of the Office of the Great Lakes, you're also involved with offshore wind farms. Can you talk a little bit about what's been happening in Michigan as far as offshore wind? Well, there are there are a significant number of new manufacturers or manufacturers who've been here several years who are looking at offshore wind, some of whom have already um, started manufacturing wind components and are shipping the components elsewhere in the nation or in some cases elsewhere in the world, but they would like to be able to have a market here in Michigan. Um, we have a Glow Council report, a Great Lakes Offshore Wind Council report that says there are areas and it's certainly not all up and down all the shorelines, um, but that it says there are areas that are good for wind, others that are not so good. Uh, so you can't put them everywhere even if you wanted to uh, because there are areas where the, the, the science does not support putting up windmills or wind turbines, large wind turbines. The uh, manufacturing companies that are working on these ideas now, many of them are gaining in strength. The, the, um, the new processes are finding, are beginning to show that they can get more wind um, out of bigger turbines further out in the lake, not necessarily right on the lake or on the shoreline of the lake. There are also areas where you would never want to put a wind turbine because there just is not the wind just does not support it, and that's both on land and, and out in the water. So I think you're going to see more talk about it going forward. There's also a huge issue of the cost of fuel today and where we get our fuel from and how many um, young men and women who are serving in our, in our Air Force and our armed forces overseas who are sometimes not coming back and in um, in this condition they left in, and because of the the cost of getting the fuel to the front, and often that's what our wars are about, or our skirmishes overseas. So I think we have to look as a country whether we want to be more self-sustaining and less dependent on foreign oil, which we know often has a huge cost to it, and some of those costs end up with our armed service members coming back and not whole parts. Well, on the phone is the director of the Office of the Great Lakes. It's Patty Burkholz. Patty, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Now back to Impact Exposure. You're tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. And now for the Michigan storytelling segment as we end every hour here at Impact Exposure. This week, we are featuring Michigan Notable Book Award author Steve Amick. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. So um, you're going to do a reading that you contributed to uh, the New York Times a few years ago. Um, what, is this, what is this reading titled? It's called Into the Blue. Way back in the 1930s, when spectacular parts of my home state were still dirt cheap, 
My forward-thinking grandfather purchased a ridiculously large amount of lakefront property on a now highly valued lake up north. The most significant feature of this beautiful and varied land grab was a point, an outcropping of beach that jutted past the unwaveringly windowpane clear shallows into the blue, the Bermudian hue that indicated a sudden drop-off. The water there was more than 60 feet deep. If you entered the lake anywhere else on our beach, say 20 feet from the point, you could wade out maybe 100 feet before it got deep. Along the way, you could see the rock-lined floor of the lake and spot the sought-after Petoskey stones without even bending closer. But if you entered the lake at the end of the point, the dark blue water would be well over your head with one small stride. The point is still there, but it is significantly eroded. That last sentence is misleadingly passive. To be more precise, jackasses on jet skis eroded it. Originally, it was called Lone Elm Point. The elm was long gone before my entry into the family, along with the roots that helped hold all that sand in place. There is some fluctuation to the point, depending on shifting winds and, these days, the wake of watercraft. Sometimes we barely have a beach, sometimes the shifts leave a respectable expanse of sand, a bold reminder of its glory days. I've heard that before I was born, there were times you could stand on the edge of the beach and dive. One summer, when I was very small, it was out far enough that my cousins, all older than my siblings and I, and therefore our heroes, dragged out an old diving board, built by my dad in his prolonged bachelor years, and set it up, anchored with rocks, right on the beach, jammed into the sand. I was three or four, so the most I could do was bounce on the board, gripping the hand of a grown-up or cousin, take a few brave steps toward the edge, and quickly return. Mostly, I squatted in the sand and watched as these long-haired, lanky teenagers hurled themselves unequivocally into the blue. A few years ago, a rather wealthy woman from a rather wealthy community downstate, hearing of our family's cottage on that lake, told me, Oh, I was there once. It's so beautiful, but so cold. All we could do, of course, was ride around in a boat and look at the water. I mean, what do you do with it? You enjoy it, I said. You just go in. She looked incredulous. How? I told her, you have to be born to it. The lake isn't for riding around and looking at things. It's for jumping in and feeling alive. In that way, it's like summer itself. The water is cold, granted. There are a lot of modifiers one could use here, but if you know the lake I'm talking about, you know what I mean by cold. Because of the clarity of the water, the lack of plant life and silt, and because of the depth of the lake, the center being an almost underwater ravine more than 300 feet at the deepest, the chill of winter lingers long into summer. When we were children, there was an unspoken competition to be the first one in the lake and the last one in at the end of the year, Mostly my sister and I vied for this title, my brothers typically being more cautious. I think my record on the late end is October 16th, and on the early end, maybe a week shy of Memorial Day. As a point of reference, renters, meaning outsiders and neophytes, can be heard screaming and squealing miles away on even a cicada-buzzing white-hot August afternoon. Maybe they go in, say, Independence Day to Labor Day, but they do not go quietly. But if you're born to it, if that's where you learn to swim... If that's where the idea of summer is formed in your head, the cold barely enters into it. Over the years, there have been girlfriends I've taken up there and introduced to the point, to this geological sudden change of plans. Mostly, they balked, troubled by the abruptness of it, preferring to move down the beach and wade and wince and bathe in their own trepidation. I have photos of these exes, arms folded across their bathing suits, nipples chilled, arms goose-pimpled, brows furrowed, glaring back at the camera, at me. For the most part, they loved the beauty and serenity, but it is interesting that anything that wasn't working came to an accelerated conclusion once we'd been up there, once I'd rolled my eyes at their hesitation. And perhaps that's the true antonym for summer, not winter, but hesitation. The last great act of Daring Do performed out on the point was perhaps done by my girlfriend at the time, Cheryl, in the summer of 2003. We'd known each other less than a year, and I proposed to her out there in the moonlight, with the waves crashing along the point. It was past midnight, and we were waiting as a cherry pie baked back in the cottage. She was sitting on a bench made of driftwood, both of us covered with flour and sweat, and I knelt in the sand and tried not to drop the ring in the dim light. She was shaking, but she did it. She said yes to a chaotic bachelor almost 40 years old, betting the long shot on a sudden romance that could have proved fleeting. It was a bold step taken there at the sight of so many bold steps quick into the deep, which is probably why I proposed. I knew she was one of us, the hurling forward kind.
And in the studio for the Michigan Storytelling segment is Steve Amick. He is a Michigan author based in Ann Arbor. And that was a story that was featured in the New York Times a few years ago. Uh, For more information about Steve Amick and his work, you can go to steve-amick.com. And his last name is spelled A-M-I-C-K. Steve Amick, thanks so much for joining us here at Impact Exposure for the Michigan Storytelling segment. Thank you. Thank you.